Uh, as we did last week, we have uh, two scripture readings today. Uh, we're going to read the first one now from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is to supplement and to help us when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 31 shortly. This is, of course, a very pastoral letter written from Paul to, to Timothy to encourage him in the ministry in which he was serving God. And this is what we read there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged with spiritual warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains." but the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they, may also, they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is the word of the Lord. Are we going to read for the last time in 1 Samuel? Uh, this time we're going to read chapter 31. Uh, Tim is going to read that for us. 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the Philistine fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchushua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armour-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armour-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armour-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armour and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armour in the temple of the Ashtaroths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and travelled all night, and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. 
Would you join me as we pray before we study this together? Let's pray. Lord God, as we approach this final uh, passage in 1 Samuel this morning, we see things there that are grievous. We see things there that are hard to grapple with, and we pray that you would grant us true understanding of your word, that we might know how to live for your glory, even in times where darkness seems to be overwhelming. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this is uh, obviously the last sermon in 1 Samuel. Uh, I've inflicted at the end of today 36 sermons from 1 Samuel on you. So thank you very much for your patience with me. I've really enjoyed it. I always feel like we're saying goodbye to to an old friend as we finish up this morning for a while. Uh, Next week we will be uh, going into the book of Philippians uh, together. So please, if you'd like to start reading and praying through that, that would be wonderful to prepare for, for next Lord's Day. As we start off with looking at 1 Samuel, chapter 31, it might be obvious, having just read the words that we've read, but I'm going to say it anyway. This chapter is an interesting finish to a book. Now, of course, 1 and 2 Samuel work together as a whole unit. We're only really halfway through Samuel. But they bring up, it brings up a whole heap of mixed thoughts and emotions for us when we're reading this carefully. We should have feelings of, of relief mixed with grief. We should have moments of wonderful clarity as well as confusion as to how is this part of God's plan. It's a tough passage and one that we hugely need God's help with to, to grapple properly. Not only as we deal with Saul and Israel losing a battle, but as we deal with those deeper matters of the heart that Samuel's been driving us to the whole way through. So I'm just going to start where the author does at verse 1. And our first point for this morning is looking at the end of Saul. So the author immediately brings us into this specific uh, the battle, this conflict uh, between the Israelites under Saul's command and the Philistines that's been brewing since the, uh, the beginning of chapter 28. About three chapters later, we finally get to this battle that's been in the background. We've been looking at things before it and beside it in terms of the timeline, and now we're actually into the battle itself. Now, as people who have been reading this through, we probably know more than the people living through this. As I said, we know what's happening with David, where the men in the Israelite army wouldn't have known what was happening with David. There's probably more insight that we have due to our, our position as, as readers of this than the people living it felt. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel, they're, they're books that are about a transition in the life of Israel. Israel has transitioned from the time of, of judges to the time of kings. And what we see here with this battle is preparation for Israel to undergo yet another transition from Saul's reign to David's reign, which we don't see that transition take effect, but it's paving the way for that to really take place. But it's one which, if you were living through these events, if you were living through this battle, if you were fortunate to survive or in the surrounding parts of Israel, would have likely brought up a lot of, a lot of uncertainty. Wondering, where are we going as a nation, a question we ask ourselves today, don't we? Where are we going as a nation? We look at things that have happened and go, how is this going to end well? On Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel and they say to him, we, we don't want your sons to rule over us, which was probably a fair statement. 
But they say, we, we, we want a king like the nations around them. So they got Saul to be the king. God gave them Saul. So basically from chapters 10 to chapter 30 has been a, a long revelation that Israel, God's people, do not need, and we today do not need leaders like the nations around. It does not end well. God knew this beforehand, but he is, as we read in the book of Hebrews, a loving father. And perhaps this is his discipline for his children. He gave them the chance to experience for themselves that a king like the nations wasn't what they needed. God has anointed David as the next king. A few people, Saul and Jonathan, knew this for sure. Perhaps a few others knew that David was the anointed king, but perhaps much of Israel didn't. They might have suspected, but not known for sure. So we know more about the upcoming transition than many of the people living through this because of our, our unique perspective, thanks to the author's recording of these events for us. Now, it's not a whole heap of detail about this battle, but this is a big battle. This is a huge battle. Remember in chapter 28, Saul saw the army of the Philistines and his heart trembled greatly. A guy who, yes, he hadn't always led on the front, as has been promised in chapter 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel, but he knew battle. He'd seen armies before, but his heart trembled greatly. It's a huge battle. The Philistines are the clear aggressors in this. From the geography given in chapter 28, they've come on to, to Israelite land. And verse 1, now the Philistines fought against Israel. As the readers, we knew this wasn't going to go well for Israel. We knew beforehand that Saul and his sons were going to die. But verse 1 is worse than perhaps we might have imagined. The men fled. They leg it. They're out of there. They're not standing to fight. They're gone. The Philistines absolutely dominate this battle. We're not given many details. What we see here is clear that the Philistines completely wipe the Israelite army away from before them. It's terrible. And verse 2 in particular, I think, is where the tragedy of this chapter comes through. It's told to us really matter-of-factly. But who dies there? Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. All of Saul's sons were killed. Now, we don't know much about Abinadab and Malkishua, but this is a tragedy to see Jonathan's death here. This is the sins of the father being visited upon the house. As I've said before, this doesn't mean that Jonathan was not saved spiritually, but physically he faced consequences for his father's sin. Jonathan was a faithful man of God, a valiant man, a warrior who, who was wise as well, died because of the unrepented sins of his father. And why I said this gives us feelings of relief as well as grief, clarity and confusion, is we can't necessarily explain all of this. We grieve to see this coming through, but as a believer, we also have relief that God's word from chapter 28 is coming true. That not a word of the Lord falls to the ground. That his word is true. And we see in verse 3, King Saul himself brought low. 
We read about the, the conflict around Saul intensifying. We see him being wounded by the archers in verse 3. And presumably it was very, very serious wounds that Saul suffered here. The battle was heavy around him. While Saul might have been able to disguise himself in the medium previously, Saul knows in verse 4 that there is zero chance of disguising himself in the Philistines. And if they take him captive, they are going to do horrible, probably unspeakable things to him. Based on what they do to his body, he's probably right. Verse 4 is tragic. Saul, knowing for sure that he will not see out this battle, turns to his armor-bearer, says to his armor-bearer, presumably a young man in Israel, it's a hard spot to put this fella in. Draw out your sword and kill me. Can you imagine being the armor-bearer? He's probably going to die anyway. Should I do it? It's a king. Maybe I shouldn't do it. Perhaps he even recalled the words that David had, uh, or the truth at least of the words David had spoken in chapter 24, that no one can lift their hand against the Lord's anointed without sinning. As he knew this, he was greatly afraid, but in response to Saul, he, he, he did not kill Saul. But despite the armor bearer doing the right thing in the face of, of tremendous adversity, Saul gives in to his cowardice, pulls out his sword, falls on it, ending his own life. This is a sinful action. This is one of those difficult truths that we need to deal with both graciously and honestly. To take a life, even your own, is to break the sixth commandment. This is what we used to refer to as suicide being self-murder. Now the commentator Gordon Keddy is very helpful to us to understand the, the, the nuances of this point here. If you ever get a copy of his 1 Samuel commentary, have a read of what he says in this chapter. He does deal both graciously and very honestly with the things brought into play here. And he does address surrounding uh, the, the, the idea of suicide, mental health issues that can at times play into this. And he says that where there is legitimacy for those things, it's not truly what you would call true suicide. He also reminds us that this is not the one big sin that would keep somebody from heaven. Jesus in Mark chapter 3 says that the sin which keeps us from heaven is to reject the Holy Spirit. It does not make this right does not make this right at all though what we see of Saul is not something we could ascribe to the, the actions of a man who is struggling with mental health issues while Saul has made unwise decisions when we're looking at this spiritually we have seen a man who is in full command of all of his capacity he is not limited in his capacity he is not struggling in his capacity. Yes, he is overwhelmed. Yes, he feels the weight of this battle. But he chooses what he thinks is the easy option. Even if the easy option is to go against God's word and God's laws. This is a tragic scene. And the transition for Israel is often tumultuous, confusing. 
Samuel is dead. Saul is dead. Saul's sons are dead. Most notably, Jonathan is dead. Now, we know that God is using this to open up for David to take the throne. And even while David had done the wrong thing in fleeing to Philistine lands, God was protecting David there that he might return to be able to rule Israel. This is a portion of scripture which in some ways we see how God is using this to further his kingdom, but it's not something we rejoice in to read this. Many Bibles, uh, the, my version of the end, New King James Version says this, has a subheading, the tragic end of Saul and his sons. That is spot on. This is tragic, especially the, the Jonathan's death aspect of this. Tragedy seems to triumph. The first six verses leave us with tragedy seeming to triumph. As we go on from verses 7 to 10, we see in our second point, the Philistines in their triumph. As I said, it was a big battle. This was a big battle, not just in the, the size of the Philistine army gathered there, and presumably a significant Israelite force gathered to meet it, although nowhere near as big. This is a, a, a big army for, for Israel's future. Verse 7 doesn't leave us feeling particularly optimistic either about the future for Israel. It tells us that the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, even those on the other side of the Jordan, which we've seen in Bible study on Wednesday night, massive body of water, even those on the other side of the Jordan, they see this take place, they're fearful, and they abandon their cities. They abandon the towns and the cities and the land that God has given them for fear of the Philistines. They knew that Saul and his sons were dead, so they got up and left too. They abandoned God's land, which the Philistines just claimed for themselves unopposed. There's two things about this, neither of which is good. The first is we note in the text here that there were men. In Hebrew, there's no caution with using adjectives in the way they write. If these were old men, unable to fight, we would know, most likely. These are men, presumably men of fighting age, who refuse to do their duty. They leave. And also raises questions, why were they not with Saul to do, be part of this battle in the first place? Verse 7 isn't particularly great. And the second part, as I said, the Philistines, having seen these guys just run away, waltz in and take possession of God's land for his people, land that God had expressly set aside for his people's possession and only for his people's possession. The tragedy of this passage continues in that it's not just Saul and his sons dying, it's that the, the, the tragedy seems to extend to the fact that God's blessings to his people, his, his tangible blessings to his people are being abandoned with seemingly minimal or, or no regard of God and overabundance of fear for the Philistines. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us that we are to fear God, not man. What we see here seems to be a, a lot of fear for the Philistines and, and little to no fear of God. Where the 
matters of the heart are so prominent through 1 Samuel. The lack of heart shown here from God's people for God has to be noted. It does stand out. Complicates matters for David when he's going to come to the throne, which God has said he will, and we see here God's word coming true. David will come to the throne. He's going to have a really messy job on his hands to begin with. His reign is going to begin with conflict because these northern parts of Israel have been taken by the Philistines, whose presence cannot be tolerated within the land. So verse 7, is, 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 it's bad. Verses 8 to 10, they're bad as well. You might be going, we were hoping to finish off on a good note with 1 Samuel. We might get there. But right now, verse 8 to 10, they continue being bad. The Philistines loot the Israelites. And in verse 8, they find Saul's bodies, body and his son's bodies as well. Verse 9, they, they commit this horrific act of cutting off Saul's head off his body. It's, it's a horrific and gruesome thing to do. And they send the head to their temples, to their pagan temples. And they put Saul's body, and later on we read when the men of Jabesh Gilead come along as well, his son's bodies as well, they put them up on this wall of Beth Shan. It's disgusting. These body-defiling, horrific people are now the possessors of, of part of the land that God had set aside for his children. They've taken over these more northern parts of the land. God had designed for people who committed such sins to be driven out of the land. It just affirms how terrible it is what's happening here. And to affirm their victory even further, the Philistines send Saul's armour to the temple of Ashtoreth. Now, we don't know whether that temple was back in the lands of Philistine, perhaps in Gath, where uh, the commander of these armies came from, or perhaps they had even set up a temple within these cities that they had taken. The text is ambiguous on that. It was their practice to set up temples when they took, uh, took new cities. Perhaps they've already built one here. First 10 verses. Decisive victory for the Philistines. Now God had indicated it would be a decisive victory. God had said Saul and his sons would die. This is what God had said would happen. But the fallout, as we weigh up all of these things, seems to leave Israel hopeless. Perhaps there are questions that people are asking, are asking of will it return to like it was in the time of the judges where there was very little, little unity between the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, they were brothers together, but they didn't really gather together in this cohesive sense that they did under Saul, under a king. Perhaps it will return to that. Perhaps it will return to loss of weaponry. Perhaps that meaning little to no chance of defending themselves. Things are, are, are crumbling in Israel and we're left with a lot of questions and an overwhelming sense that things are not going to be easy to get back on track. So to finish off this morning, we have to ask ourselves, is all hope lost? Short answer is no. But because I'm a pastor, I'm going to talk more about it. Verses 11 to 13. A little bit of a silver lining on these incredibly dark clouds on the horizon, aren't they? 
the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Interesting to note that one of Saul's first acts as king was to rescue the men of Jabesh-Gilead for the Ammonites who were attacking him. And following Saul's last act as king, we see these men come into play as well. It's showing that this time of Saul is, is definitely over. It, it, it works to bookend Saul's first and last acts as king. The, the men of Jabesh-Gilead heard what had happened. Looks hopeless, but a bunch of dudes rise up. We've seen men fleeing cities, but here some men of Jabesh-Gilead stand up. These are described as valiant men. They are warriors. They were men of great courage. They were men of wonderful integrity who cared about the name of the Lord. Now, the Philistines presumably thought by doing what they did, sending Saul's armour and head off the way they did to these temples, would have been a means of shaming God. Was God shamed in this chapter? No. This happened according to God's word. God was not shamed in this chapter. Of course he was not. He said that this was going to happen. He is sovereign. His word came true. But the Philistines clearly thought that putting Saul's body on this wall, his son's bodies up on this wall as well, sending his head and his armour off would have accomplished shaming the name of the Lord. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, they stand up. They come into an area which would have been crawling with Philistines. They travelled all night and all day to get there. To an area crawling with Philistines who had absolutely no issue killing any Hebrews they found. They went up to the walls of the city and cut down the body of Saul and his sons and treated them with respect. They stood up when a whole heap of other people wouldn't. They stood up when a whole heap of other people ran away. They could have taken notes from those guys who ran away, but they didn't. They were faithful to God. They treated the Lord's anointed with respect. Now David was still in Ziklag at this time. He was in Philistine lands. Presumably in the, the, the midst of chasing down uh, the, the, the Amalekites who we saw last week. Samuel was not around. This reminds us that to hope in a man, in a person, is not enough. One of the Psalms beautifully reminds us we are never to trust the princes of men, we are to trust God. The people of Israel, they couldn't just sit and wait now for Saul or for David or for Samuel to do something. They had a responsibility to God as well. And the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead show us how to take that responsibility seriously. Because this is a responsibility that we have too as Christians, as followers of the one true God. We cannot just wait for other people, particularly leaders, to act. Now, our leaders have a responsibility to act. Chris and I, as elders in the church, you have a responsibility to stand up and do what's right by God. Likewise, our deacons have a responsibility to stand up and do what's right by God. 
But just because we have elders and deacons does not mean that each and every follower of Christ does not have a responsibility to stand up and do what's right. This simply phrased action of the men of Jabesh Gilead gives us a wonderfully beautiful insight to the disposition of these guys' hearts. They cared about the glory of God. They cared about being faithful to God. They did something because of that that was scary. They did something that could have cost them their lives. It could have caused them serious injury. Perhaps they wouldn't have been able to work the fields if this had gone wrong. But still, they did what was right. Is this our response when we see things going wrong? When we see legislation being passed that is so contrary to God's word, do we take a stand? When we see the mistreatment of our neighbours, do we take a stand? Do we take our responsibility to be faithful to God and seek to give him glory as seriously as these men of Jabesh Gilead did? We should. What they did was right. What they did was commendable. What they did is something that we should follow after ourselves, this pattern of behaviour. Shows us a wonderful heart for God. As we finish 1 Samuel, we, we need to be asking ourselves if, if our actions show the same heart in ourselves. Now that applies to us both as a, as a church, as a body of people brought together as one group, as well as individuals. Now, there may be times where we haven't shown this heart. There may be things in our life that we know are likely to prevent us from doing this. If we know those things are there, we should prayerfully seek to deal with those things. Hebrews tells us to cast aside every weight of sin that we might run even better. Bit of a paraphrase at the end there, sorry. Where we see wrong, where we see injustice, where we see wicked where we see evil, in those places and even more, our holy gods, holy people, have a responsibility to be seen and heard. We see in this conclusion to 1 Samuel, the consequences of a heart that has repeatedly said no to God. It is not a good end. It is not a good end that Saul suffers. But we also see the courage and the conviction to do what's right, that God grows in the hearts of those who love him. We are not called to timidity. We are called to live boldly in holiness in faithful service to God. These are things that we cannot grow in ourselves. We, we just can't. So what we do, what we do is we ask that God might work in us to this end.
not just to avoid hard, albeit fair, consequences for sin, but pray that God might grow this in us so that in every single thing we do, we might live the way that God has designed us to and find joy, contentment, and grace in God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this book of 1 Samuel. While what we read in this 31st chapter is in many ways a hard, hard thing to read. It causes us to search our hearts deeply. We pray, O oh God, that you would work within us, that you might reveal to us those sins that need to be removed, that we don't even see in ourselves. We pray, O oh God, that our commitment to doing what is right by you will be what people notice in us. That even when things are scary and intimidating, perhaps even life-threatening, that we might do what is right according to your word and your will. We pray that your spirit might move us to do this, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.